Welcome to Canva Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna-Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. Today's episode is brought to you by the phrase, future-proof your career, which is something I think about a lot and was the subtitle of a recent newsletter that landed in my inbox that I subscribed to. And when I saw it, all sorts of bells and whistles went off in my head and I had to immediately reach out to its author, Evan Shapiro, and ask him if he could come on the podcast to discuss. He graciously said yes, so I'm very happy. Evan, if you don't know, is the unofficial official cartographer of the media universe. And if you are working in this space, you need to be following and taking notes if you're not already. Evan's diverse career began, I love this, as a stable boy in high school shoveling horse manure, which we can joke all day about how handy that comes in working in the media and entertainment industrial complex. Still shoveling, still shoveling shit. <laughs> forever. Then Evan moved on to marketing at the public theater before transitioning to television, first at Court TV, and then as president of IFC and Sundance channels for several years before early adopting into digital for a number of outlets and launching several networks. And now Evan makes a broad impact sitting on several boards and as a full-time CEO pundit strategist, enlightening me on the daily. So welcome, Evan. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much. You know what, Evan, before we get into what are the future-proof essentials, I want to talk for a minute about the difference between mapping and cartography, which there may only be a difference in my mind, but for anybody who hasn't seen what you do already, the visuals are stunning. And like, I would go to an exhibit somewhere of just seeing, you know, the maps that you make. So I just want to talk about in your head, if there is a difference between mapping and cartography, because officially cartography is the art and science of making maps and charts. And you've elevated this. Thank you. Um, I think to me, I mean, I don't know if the, how, uh, whether there's actually a, a difference between cartography and mapping, but the way I approach it is it's data visualization as narrative storytelling. Um, and so I think map makers are looking for kind of highly accurate relief of the geography of, a, of an area. Um, whereas I'm really looking to take a collection of data points from the universe and turn them into a story. Um, so there's definitely a point of view to the maps I make as opposed to simply just uh, an accurate portrayal of a landscape. Because I think if you look at the media landscape, there's several different ways to look at it, depending on what sector you come from or what criteria you're using. My goal with this map, which is over my corner, my left shoulder here, um, was really to show the true scope, size, and stakes of the war for your attention and your consumer dollars. Well, I'm a visual learner, so I find it incredibly helpful, right? Um, but there's also something, the aesthetics, so, and I didn't, I didn't see anywhere in your background, like having coming from art. So, but I didn't know, you know, where your incredibly elevated visual sense comes from, because there's, you know, there are graphs and PowerPoints, and then there's what you're putting out. But I want to ask you too, because I feel like you see the world in a very different way from most of us, which is incredible. But also I, I'm wondering, like when you're a kid, was that hard? And I was just curious, like, when did you become aware that you see the world 
maybe differently than other people. You connect dots differently than other people. You see patterns that other people don't see. And when did you go, this is really good and marketable and valuable. That's a really interesting point of view to ask that question from. I, I learned really early on that I saw the world differently than other people. And I always thought that there was a need for it in the world. Um, I just didn't necessarily, I, I tried to do it as a director, um, as a writer, which I, I still write today, but as a more of a kind of uh, screenwriter. Um, and it wasn't until later in my life that I understood exactly how to turn it into a superpower and make it something, you know, that that is its own thing versus trying to fit it into the shoebox of someone else. Um, so, you know, it, it was frustrating in, in school. It was frustrating. You know, I mean, look, I, I, I'll be honest. I, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've never had a point where I didn't have some kind of, you know, interesting project or job going on. So, you know, it's not as if it, it stopped me from being able to earn a living or get opportunity, but I will say, you know, it, it, it at times was difficult to uh, translate the things that I saw in my head to an audience of bean counters, attorneys, and people in ties. So when did you land on this? So, I mean, the, the, the true trajectory of my career took off when, when I helped uh, uh, rebrand the public theater and Shakespeare in the Park. Um, and it was at that moment um, right around that time, I had to give up my career as a as a writer and director and focus on my arts management career, my 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 media management career. But I was able to kind of like channel the juice and energy I got from creating theater, which at the time was the art form that I worked in, and putting it into advertising and marketing. And it was and it was really that moment. And by the way, yeah, then when I started my own business, which was an advertising agency, I was able to kind of up until that point, I really didn't like spreadsheets. I, I didn't really enjoy financial analysts or projections or anything like that. I, I actually kind of heavily av avoided it. But when you run your own business, you can't do that. And so it was at that point, I kind of tricked myself into seeing media plans, business plans, um, projections as art and as narrative storytelling. And the day I, I started understanding how to take numbers and tell a story with them was the day I was able to kind of pick up business, turn it upside down and see that there is an art to it. It's not just all science. Um, and that everybody who tells you there's, it's just a science and there's right ways to do things and wrong ways to do things is wrong. They're just, they want you to follow the path that they've charted for themselves that makes them feel comfortable. Um, but the ability to, to kind of ask the question about, you know, when I learned that the way people amortize content and, and materials is different at different companies, like that was a really eye-opening experience to me. You're like, oh, you can tell this story differently depending on how you look at the way money is spent. Fascinating. Well, now that I know that, and that became part, you know, that's where numerology started to kind of fit into the visual storytelling that I do and finding ways to produce content for different prices at different levels also became a part of that factor. And then I started to understand that if you talk to an artist, if you understand where an artist wants to go, 
but they don't understand the business principles behind how to make the art work for the buyer that they're selling to. And you can be the translator, the interlocutor between the two parties. Well, then suddenly you can, you can occupy a space that is very unique because very few business people understand art and very few artists understand business. But the person who can jump between the left and right brain can really carve out a unique place for themselves. And that's like when you look at Portlandia, which was a, a pitch I got from Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein, where they came in with a series of digital shorts that they shot on a phone and called it Thunder Ant. And I asked them a series of questions and pitched back to them the idea of making Portland the main character. And then they went off and made a pilot for $120,000 that wound up being the, the, the first thing that aired of that show. That's kind of quintessentially me coming into my own as a producer, but also as a business person, but also as an artist. And, and really, like, I didn't write that show. I didn't, I didn't physically produce that show. But that show was definitely a product of the way I see the world. And everything that's come since then really is kind of a, some kind of manifestation of that unusual point of view that sometimes frustrates the hell out of business people and sometimes confuses artists, but usually finds middle ground between the two parties. Well, I want to go back to something you said early in that conversation was about superpowers. So I think as you noticed, it's in my introduction to the podcast. It's one of my favorite things. And it's a, you know, foundational principle of my business is for people to tap into their superpowers and play to your strengths and and explore differences, which I just think is incredible. So you have all these quotes that I love around this. So one was, uh, there are no small businesses, appoint yourself your own CEO and treat your talents as superpowers. And so when did you start to understand what your superpowers are? I read this book uh, and I was forged by Jim Collins and I was fortunate enough to um, spend time with him uh, at a, at a, four-day seminar at his office in, in Boulder. Um, and at that uh, point, I also met uh, a bunch of other business leaders that um, really had a big influence on, including Roy Spence, um, who had a big impact on, on my life. And, you know, he breaks down, you know, going from good to great as a, as a journey to find three different aspects of who you are as a business. And I've started applying it to my life around that time, which is, you know, what is your passion? What would you do um, even if you didn't get paid? What's your unit of sale? Um, how do you transact out in the world? What do you bottle and sell on a shelf? Um, and in what unit of measure? And then lastly, what is the thing you might do better than anyone else in the world? And he, he applies that to, to businesses and, and the businesses that go on that journey and discover those three things are the ones that go from good to great and are built to last. Um, and I have those books on the shelf behind me. I applied those to my event. I now coach people to kind of go on that journey themselves. And the day I started looking for those three things was the day that I took the first step towards discovering what that superpower was. It took a couple of years to understand what it was. I mean, I kind of knew it. And I, and I took uh, the strengths finder thing and that was very useful to kind of hone in on stuff for me, but it was probably around the time that I left IFC to go to participant that I really understood, um, what, what it, what it boiled down to. Um, and that superpower is really for me, it's leading change. 
and it, it is it is a it is a very specific and yet general thing. So I write things that I hope let people open eyes to change that's necessary in the industry, but also within themselves. But I also help individuals look towards changes that they can make in their own lives. I mean, it's why I teach at NYU and Fordham. It's not because those two organizations pay me a fortune, which they absolutely do not. It's because I get to learn from these students on an ongoing basis how to change my mind about how the industry should be run. But at the same time, I can help these people very early in their careers and in their lives change trajectories in themselves that will hopefully help them avoid a lot of the pitfalls that older people like you and I fall into when we embark on our careers because we're told stupid shit like, you know, have a backup plan um, or, you know, take the safe way out or, you know, get a good job. And that's all that matters. You know, those things are all kind of relatively seem to make sense. But at the end of the day, if you're 20 years old and you're focusing on your backup plan, that seems like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to play third baseman for the Yankees, you should have a backup plan. But if you're studying acting at NYU or you're studying design at Fordham University or you're in love with certain aspects of what you do in your world and at 18 you're told to have a backup plan, like what's the point of being 18 if you're told to focus on your backup plan? If you come home with a D in math but an A in English and you're told to improve your math, yeah, I mean, you should be able to balance your checkbook, I guess. Uh, I don't really do that. I, don't, I haven't done that in my life. You know, I, I found someone to do that for me. Better learn how to be a writer and focus on the things that actually turn you on and, and make you happy and that you're actually good at as opposed to constantly trying to improve the stuff that like I, I, I asked this class question in my class, uh, who here likes to public speak? Very few people raise their hand. And yet how many times do we hear you know, in college classes or in business offices where you should take an advantage, take an opportunity to speak in front of the office or speak in front of the class. Well, if you're paralyzed by that, is that really the greatest idea in the world? Or maybe should you focus on the things that you are really good at and be great at them versus trying to improve the things you absolutely fucking hate and torture you? And that's to me, you know, the Strengths Finder book was also a really big aha moment for me, which is focus on the things that make you strong and maybe perhaps minimize the things that make you feel weak and make them as insignificant as you possibly can. And so around the time of reading those books and talking to the authors of those books and focusing on developing talent at IFC, a participant at teaching at NYU, these were the things that really drove me towards what I think is my superpower, which is leading change in organizations, leading change in the industry, uh, forcing change in the world, and selling that on a kind of profit per idea basis. Oh, wow. I want to ask you just to be clear. Is So how do you walk me through a little bit of how your average person could uh, run their superpower as a small business? Well, the, the first thing is, and, and I really do in, encourage you to read Good to Great, although it's a bit dated now because the, the business cases he uses are kind of old, but those three circles of the Venn diagram, um, what, 
what might you be able to do best in the world? Maybe you're not doing it best in the world today, but what, what do you have the opportunity to do best in the world? And, and one of the things that came from Strength Finder for me was just because something comes easy to you does not mean it is not a superpower. In fact, to a certain extent, if it comes easy to you, chances are it is a superpower. So if you like to public speak, that could be a superpower. Exactly. Oh, say that one more time. Just because something is comes easy to you does not mean it is not a talent. Um, in fact, to a certain extent, if something does come easily to you, it probably is a talent. So if you like, if you like meeting new people and striking up conversations, not a lot of people actually dig that. And if that's something you're really good at, like walking into a bar at an airport and striking up a conversation and turning that into a kind of friendship, like that's a superpower. And I don't know how to turn that into a business, but pursue it, dive into that, figure out what that is. Um, what is your passion? If you are passionate about something, you will be better at it. That is just kind of science. There's actually data that, that demonstrates that satisfied employees are more productive employees. And what is your unit of sale? How do you transact in the world um, in a way that is profitable for you? So Walgreens is profit per square foot. That is their unit of sale. How do you do that? And so if you can put that Venn diagram together, picture a three-circled Venn diagram, and look for each component, go on a journey towards each component and fill in each circle and then try to do the things that are at the center of that Venn diagram all the time or the overlap of those three circles. And that's how you determine what your superpower is. How do you turn that into a business or how do you use that in your career? Well, ultimately, if you're really good at something and people tell you you're really good at it and you're passionate about it, and you found a way to make a living at it, chances are you're being underpaid for it because most people are, frankly. Uh, most companies, their entire design is to underpay for the, for the services that they need and overcharge for the services that they provide. That is the nature of capitalism. Um, and what it, and we've seen in kind of droves in the last five years is that corporations care less about their employees and their customers than they do about the bottom line. That is just like just look at meta that is the that is the business model of meta you are the product and we're going to sell you to the highest bidder at the greatest profit and we don't give a shit about how it affects you nor how it affects the world and that is that is the nature of capitalism and it's not just meta but they are perhaps the, the best case study of it so first ask yourself am i being fairly compensated am i am i getting in return enough value for the services i'm providing and right now specifically we're at a time in, in history that is the greatest, greatest workers economy ever in any of our lifetimes. There's never been a, a greater demand for work workers than there, than there is right now. There are far more open jobs than there are workers uh, to fill them. And so first things first, turn it into an advantage inside your career. Understand your place in your business. Understand your value in the marketplace. Market yourself well. Talk about yourself well articulate yourself well, turn your superpower into a 25 word elevator pitch for yourself, and then figure out a way to exploit that to the greatest profit. It's what every business does. Sometimes you'll work for a big corporation and the sole client of your business will be this big company, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't take advantage of the value that they see in you to the greatest effect. Sometimes it means taking your business elsewhere, out into the open market and selling it to many bidders, and opening a small business around it. Sometimes it means changing jobs, but it does mean 
oftentimes I'll talk to people like very senior people who I coach and I'll say, and, and oftentimes they'll be in marketing because I, I have a history of marketing and I'll say, you know, you're a great marketer. The product you market worst is your, is yourself. Like think about yourself as a product launch or as a, or as a rebrand and then think about who the market is and then market the fuck out of it. And for a lot of people our age and, and older and younger, that's a real aha moment. It's like, oh, well, I never really thought about that that way. But you have to think of your career as your own business. And you have to think about everything you do on social media as your marketing arm. And you have to think about the way you negotiate your contracts and your, and your salary and your clients as your enterprise. And it's an everyday thing. It is not easy. It is hard work. It, it never gets easier. Um, and it won't get easier on a moving forward basis. But if you wake up stupid every day and you attack every day as an opportunity to improve your, your place in the marketplace, it gets easier. It becomes a flywheel. And then every push, you know, goes further. Right there. For so many people, that would be such a massive mindset shift that moves forward and also into the future proofing your career, which brings me to my next favorite quote from your newsletter. I have found that at least for me, pivoting is key to surviving. How do you prepare to pivot? Preparing to pivot is uh, preparing to do it before you need to, first of all. Like you, you always have to be ready to change on a dime because that's how the world works. Look at the last 24 months. You know, the, the companies that pivoted, the people that pivoted, you know, 24 months ago when COVID started are going to come out of COVID ahead of the game. I know that sounds weird because a million people in the United States died, but it did happen. I mean, my business has changed and, and grown um, over COVID because I was able to kind of adapt to the marketplace. There are tons of businesses that are examples of that. I just had a conversation with a, a new startup business yesterday that was just, they were at the right time at the right place. It's an online driven business. So being prepared to pivot is part of pivoting. And, and one of the big things I do is I wake up stupid every day. I wake up every day and I do an hour of reading before I do anything else. I try to learn as much I, as I can about my own industry and about other industries before most people wake up. It, it is part of my morning routine along with all of my other morning things. And then I do an hour of writing after that. And that's how I publish every day on LinkedIn. Um, sometimes the stuff I write doesn't get published. Sometimes it's just for me. But I do two hours of just brain work every morning. And that's a long held habit. Um, that's, that's a habit I've had for, you know, well over a decade. And I have found that it's, it's, if you're not retraining your brain on a daily basis, then you are falling behind. There have been times in my career, many times in my career where I've been too early to something. Um, I tried to convince, um, AMC networks to turn Sundance channel into a streaming only service in 2011. It was too early. It was too early for them. It was too early for the world. I tried to make pivot into a streaming only service. In 2012 and 2013, the MVPDs weren't ready for it yet. CISO was meant to be a, a streaming comedy service. Um, I, I had The Office ready to take off Netflix and put on CISO exclusively. It was too early for NBC, and it was clearly too a little too early for the industry. But I will tell you that seeing around corners is a big part of being ready to pivot. No, and, and it's, you know, to a certain extent it is a talent. So I do tend to look at things differently than a lot of other people. But at the other point, it's just a skill set. It's just a tactic. The more you read, 
the more you learn, the more you know, the ready you are for what happens down, down the pike. And if you are prepared for changes in the industry that you're in or in other industries, well, then you were at NFTs before other people. You were bought Bitcoin at a thousand, like Mike Novogratz, who's a client of mine, did. Um, you, you know, you bought Roblox before it launched as a stock. Now it's not as great as it was a year ago, but you know, these are all good examples of understanding what's coming next and getting ahead of the curve. I mean, that's when where great wealth is made. It's not, you know, buying high and selling low. It's buying at zero and selling at something. Um, and that's true in yourself too. I, you know, I, first time I converted a television show into, I'm sorry, a podcast into a television show was 2008. Comedy Bang Bang. And uh, Scott Ackerman is a genius and everybody who works on that show is a genius. And they, they, we, we did that as a short series first, thanks to a, a really uh, a smart bunch of uh, executives at IFC. They brought this property to me and I was like, this sounds great. And it's a cheap show to make. Let's fucking do it. And now everybody's turning podcasts into, into television shows. Like it's the thing to do now, right? I've done it five times in my career. Comedy Bang Bang, Marin uh, was what uh, WTF. Um, my brother, my brother and me, Harmon Quest, put your hands together into Take My Wife. Now it's a muscle memory that I, that I have. And now I use podcasting as a development tool. And, you know, a big part of my enterprise right now is producing white label podcasts for other people. Very, you know, very efficiently. And this is before podcasting were, was as popular as it is, as it is now. I, by accident, uh, happened into Web3 and crypto because I got a gig producing Mike Novogratz's podcast and he's a crypto genius and, a, and was in Bitcoin, you know, in the four digits. As a consequence of being around him and doing work for him, I learned uh, over the last couple of years, crypto and blockchain and all this other stuff in a way that I probably wouldn't otherwise. Now, I could have just shied away from it and said, all right, well, this is fine, but I think it's bullshit and blah, blah, blah. And I still think there's a tremendous amount of hyperbole in crypto and blockchain and Web3. But I read everything about it and I know more about it than most other people in traditional media, which is why, not, why now people hire me to advise them on their NFT strategies and their crypto strategies. That was an accident. But a lot of people would have looked at that accident and said, it's too complicated. Frankly, it's bullshit. So I'm not going to get into it. I found it interesting, both sides, the bullshit and the reality of it. And now I can actually explain crypto to somebody very quickly in 25 words or less, that gets them at least to understand why it's going to be something versus why it's not going to be something. Wait, can we play crypto in 25 words or less with Evan Shapiro right now? Sure. So the reason why Web3 is going to be a thing is because contracts are untrackable right now in paper, and they are infinitely trackable in crypto and blockchain. So when you make a contract to produce a film that comes with royalties, if it's on a smart contract, you'll never have to hire a lawyer to track down whether you're being paid correctly. Wow, that was fantastic. And I've never heard that before. I love it. I was just gonna say my fascination, just the way you fall into stuff as a sidebar. Mine is from media training, crypto and fintech experts. And I, I, it just opened my mind. And, and it just happened to be lucky for me as a naturally curious person that I work with experts across so many disciplines that I know nothing about. And I'm like a sponge, you get super excited about it, which just, so I want to go back for a second, just to recap, because you said so many great things about one. I love, I'm a big believer in ritual. 
what doesn't matter what time of day, but I'm also a hardcore morning ritual person. And the things that I do, regardless of where I am in the world at any given time, it's like, these are part of my morning ritual. So how early do you get up, by the way? Not that early. I get, I get up at, at, at around 6.30, you know, 7 o'clock. And, and then my first call is usually not till 9. So, you know, 7 to 9 is writing, reading, everything else. Now, I do other things while I'm doing it. I, I will tell you, I, I'm embarrassed to say how many very long articles I've written on my iPhone while on the toilet. So, you know, it's, it's, it, you have to figure out how to make these You're things. You're a multitasker. I am a multitasker. <laughs> I can write 10,000 words, in, in, you know, during my morning, morning routine while I'm brushing my teeth, while I'm, you know, walking the dog, while I'm doing other things, because they're mindless things that don't take, they don't take up processing power, right? They're running in, the, those things are running in the background. And meanwhile, I'm writing a 3,000 word article about fast. I also dedicate 10 hours every weekend just to writing. So that's a whole other thing. So the longer pieces I write typically happen on the weekend. And I dedicate five hours on Saturday and five hours on Sunday just to writing. It frustrates the hell out of my wife um, because I, I don't like to do other things. Like if, if you try to interrupt those five hours on Friday and Friday, Saturday and five hours on Sunday, I get very fucking cranky, but it is a major difference maker for me. It has changed. And by the way, those 10 hours on the weekend, that's a relatively new addition to the, to the routine. That is just the last two years. But during those, that time I have started a sub stack. Um, I wrote a book proposal. I'm finishing a 13 episode comic book. Um, I write probably a hundred thousand words a week. I, I write business plans for companies for a fee. Those 10 hours are really productive hours. And, but I do think it's the, it's the 10 hours I spend on the other five days, the two hours a day that has trained my brain. Like there are days I don't want to do it, but I do it. And I power through the, the immediate writer's block that everybody gets when they stare at a blank page. Like that fast uh, track thing that I, that I put out uh, uh, about a week ago, boy, that was hard. That was really hard. I did not want to do it. I really didn't it, because it was just, it was a whole new area of the business for me. I didn't really know it that well. There's not a lot of great data on it. It's really chaotic, but I forced myself to do it. And it's because of the routine that I had the space for my mind to, to get my head around it. And I'm like, well, obviously it's a racetrack, right? And then, all right, now that I know it's a racetrack, I can start to put it together. But it, but it, without that routine, there's no way I would have gotten that done. I would have basically said, nah, it's not worth it. Well, see, to recap again, because that goes back, there's something Stephen Pressfield writes about is the difference between a professional and an amateur because the professional keeps going, right? And so that also a couple of things. One, it's like, you know, when you tap into your passion as a superpower. And so that's an important thing not to negate anyone else. But on the other hand, you said something so important. It's like when I hear it a lot, like, aspiring anything and somebody will say that's too much work like then probably not what you should be doing yeah i mean just to know from like working with athletes it's like the goat doesn't sleep in the goat exercises tries harder rehearses more thinks so much more intently and strategically and tactically than anybody else there's no sleeping in and so that becomes a really important yeah i mean michael about- jordan michael jordan didn't make his varsity high school basketball team 
And it, it, it's only through fucking killing himself that he became the greatest basketball player of all time. Still the greatest basketball player of all time. Um, Tom Brady, if you, if you see pictures of him when he got drafted by the, by the Patriots, he did not look like the best quarterback who would ever play the game in any way, shape or form. And yet his work ethic is what trans, you know, it transformed him. You know, he happened to also be lucky and get a great coach which is all painful for me to say, by the way. But the the key is he he got lucky and then also took advantage of that good fortune. Those are the things that matter. I'll listen to a writer say, I have a great idea for a script and I'll coach them and I'll give them advice. 90% of them never finish that script. There you go. 90% of, of writers who come to me with an idea, I say, here's my feedback. This is what I would do with it. I will, I will read the script. Anytime you're ready to send me the script, I will read the script. And I say it to every writer because I know nine times out of 10, they will never come back with a script. So I want to circle back to the prepare to pivot and the, and the, and the idea that being to future proof your career, because one is to prepare, because I'm think i just so excited and inspired by everything you've said today. So because one was the, the power of ritual, which I really believe in, two, the showing up every day and doing, three, staying open and curious, because, and that's why I want to ask you, it's like, it may be so innate to you, you may not have an answer for this, but sometimes I look for like, is there a checklist of filters of ways to understand? Is it seeing patterns? Is What is it that when you realize I'm reading all this information, how you discern what's what you need to focus on? Like, you know what, that's something I need to just keep tracking. Like this thing sounds like it's not going to be trendy. It may be an actual trend or an inflection point. How, how do you know? Because you actually have a sense for this. Uh, there are smart people in the world, and if I hear more than one of them mention something, I know it's something, it's time to look into it, right? And so, you know, I read a lot of smart people. I, I talk to a lot of smart people. I have 55 NYU students in my class, um, all of whom I force to do a five-minute presentation each week. They don't, don't present it to me, but they have to hand in a five-minute a five PowerPoint presentation to me every week. So I'm getting 55 pieces of input from 18 to 22 year olds every week, right? So that's a lot more data points. And I look for like, if one person says it, it's not a trend. If two people says it, say it, well, there's a trend in the making. If I hear it from three different points, well, then suddenly I'm spending time on it that weekend. And Web3 was, was that for me very early on. Podcasting was that for me very early on. Right now, fast is that thing. And then also, to me, the idea of right now, I'm fo very focused on something. It's a phrase that I came up with, but it's a, a product of being kind of approached about this thing by several different disparate people, which is insight as a service. So everybody, you know, there's software as a service, there's data as a service. Um, to me, insight is a service. And, and actually that's the business that that's when people ask me, what does my business do? That, that is the business that my business is in. It, and it's a, it's a shifting of the economic model of content, which is, you know, there is a model in journalism and, and media of, well, we'll mix advertising and subscription and that's our new model. Right. Um, and, and many businesses that were very heavily advertising supported have now moved very heavily into subscription, the New York Times being the best example of that. But I'm very focused in the creator economy, in content as a service, insight as a service, talent as a service, whereas 
rather than being the most popular person who gets pennies from the entire audience, develop a cult and generate hundreds of dollars from each user. Um, and that's the kind of heartbeat of the creator economy. And it's very much where a tremendous amount of the content economy is going to move over the next five years. We're already there. I wrote a big, long piece on my, my uh, newsletter about how the creator economy was really came into its own in 2021 because creators suddenly could make a middle-class living. Prior to 2021, there was the upper class, the top 1% who made a fortune and the bottom 99% who made bupkis and the platforms made all the money. Because of the pandemic, because of the lockdown, the middle class of creator economy was, was born in 2021 where there's a great article. I was in the information this week about this kid who designs fashion in Roblox. He made $600,000 last year designing things that people's avatars in Roblox can wear. I shit you not. He's 21 years old. He started doing this when he was 11. He, he now has a project with Stella McCartney. I'm not kidding you. He's got a creative director, but he's a middle-class designer. Well, he's actually probably an upper-class designer in Roblox, but he slogged through making $5,000 a year, $10,000 a year, $20,000 a year, $50,000 a year. The top Patreon now makes eight figures. The top Patreon makes eight figures, but the, the 700th biggest Patreon makes six figures, right? The 900th Patreon makes five figures. So you can make a middle-class living in the creator economy. There are, there are more than a million, there's actually probably close to 1.5 million Substack paying subscribers. There are 1.5 million people who pay for Substack newsletters. There has never been a better time to practice your own wares as a bespoke artist for a cult, for, for a, a pool of people who will pay you a price to be proximate to you. Um, think about it this way. If you have 10,000 listeners on your podcast, you can't really sell ads. You can, but you'll make hundreds of dollars. But if you can get those 10,000 people each to pay you a dollar a month, that's $120,000 a year. If you get them pay you $2 a month, that's $240,000 a year. And after Patreon takes their 12%, that's a nice living. You're not going to change. You're not going to you know, buy a house in Beverly Hills with it, but it certainly beats the shit out of trying to beat Joe Rogan at his game, right? There, you know, there, most podcasts have 300 or fewer listeners. So if you're trying to get to a million listeners, you're not, it's very unlikely you're going to do it. But can you get to 5,000? Can you get to 5,000 readers on your Substack who will each pay you a dollar a month? That's not going to change your life and you're not going to be able to necessarily move to, to, the, to the mountains and retire on it. But $60,000 a year from a Substack is not a bad income, especially if it's not your primary income. I really like where you're going with this, Evan. I like this a lot. Yeah. So find a, find a way to take your superpower and transact on it, even in small doses. And, and, and it, it's very useful. I just want to say for anyone new to your universe, which is incredible. Could you just share all the different places to find you? And are there ways that you even prioritize LinkedIn, Twitter? Your yeah. Sister? So if you're, if you're a business person, I would say probably find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, I, I would say I'm probably the most popular Evan Shapiro on LinkedIn. On Twitter, I'm at eShap. My Substack newsletter is called Media War and Peace. Those are probably the best ways to, to find me. 
Um, but also I, I work on a very fun podcast called Roast of Your Teenage Self. I produce a podcast called Next with Nova with Mike Novogratz. Those are both worth checking out. And then I, I recently started working on a project with D3, which is a very fun Web3 media company founded by uh, Lori Segal and Derek Dodge. Um, and we just put out two really interesting interviews, one with the uh, CEO of Yuga Labs, which is the company behind Bored Apes. Um, and then yesterday we put out a really fascinating interview with Chris Dixon, who runs crypto investment for Andreessen Horowitz. Um, just a really fascinating, eye-opening interview, um, which you can find at D3 Network on Twitter um, and a bunch of different other places as well. And I just want to reiterate, it's just as a subscriber to your Substack, man, you, you put incredible value. And there's just so much power in that when people will often say to me, but there's already so many XYZs out there. And I'm like, but not everybody's providing value. And I think that is, again, going back to the future proof, makes such a difference. And also then the um, commitment, integrity, and love and dedication you put into showing up every day in those two hours of writing and researching, and then we value and look what you know, this incredible universe you're creating. Thank you. I mean, I think the thing I like to say about superpowers and, and trying to figure them out is the thing that you will do better than anyone else in the world or can do better than anyone else in the world is be yourself. And the question is, are you being the best version of yourself that you can possibly be? You can say there's a lot of XYZ out there, but there's, I think, Anyone who reads me or knows me will tell you there's only one Evan Shapiro. Good, bad, or indifferent, there is only one of me. I am extremely specific. And if you like the taste of wine that I provide, you're going to love what I do. If you don't, that's cool. But you have to figure out a way to sell the best thing you are, which is yourself, at a unit of measure that is profitable for you. And, and that is what my newsletter is. That is what, that is what I do I love it. Thank you so much, Evan. This was great. Well, we're going to have to have you back to talk about being our best selves. We'll get Oprah when she's available too. Cool. Wow. For me and Oprah to be, be uttered in the same sentence, I am very flattered. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. Please visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera. And as always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.